Had you ever seen anything like that sudden drop in emissions before? As far as we could tell, this had never happened so suddenly. The last big drop at an annual level that happened at that scale was during World War II. This was on the same level as World War II then? The change certainly was on the same level as what happened in World War II in terms of emissions. A warm welcome to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. My name is Peter Alestig and in this podcast I talk to some of the world's leading scientists about what is actually happening in the climate and what consequences does it have. In today's episode I meet the Canadian climatologist Corinne Lequerie who made headlines around the world last year when she conducted studies of how fast emissions fell in connection with the corona pandemic. What she saw was astonishing, not at any time in history except possibly in connection with the outbreak of World War II did human emissions not at any time not at any time in history except possibly in connection with World War II did human emissions of carbon dioxide drop so rapidly. And this became some kind of hopeful news in the midst of the ongoing health disaster. But what do the dramatic emission reductions really mean for the climate? And what can the world actually learn from the pandemic in the work to meet the climate threat going forward? These are issues that we will dig deeper into with Corinne Lecquerie. And we start this interview by talking about what actually happened to her when the first alarming reports about the corona pandemic came in the beginning of last year. This was the most incredible experience uh, for me, uh, the pandemic, because already uh, like in February when uh, China went under confinement, I started to receive uh, requests from journalists, questions. People wanted to know what was going on in pollution, in carbon emissions. And as a carbon expert myself, I should have known the answer. And initially, I kind of ignored it, and I thought, oh, this will blow over. How big can it be? And then sometime end of February, early March, I started to be bombarded by questions, and I was really embarrassed that I had nothing to offer. And I got together with some colleagues on the Global Carbon Project, and we pulled our brains together and thought, okay, uh, we need to answer this question. We didn't have the data appropriate to follow the change so quick. And we then sat back and thought, well, we need to devise a new method. And that's exactly what we did. So actually, this sparked a whole new research method, research project somehow. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic uh, sparked indeed a, a whole new research uh, method. We had to find data that could give indication of how the sectors that emit the most, like transport, like industry, like power, how these sectors were turning themselves slowly off or half off associated with the confinement So the first thing I did is I sat behind my computer, which of course I do every day, but I started harvesting the internet for data that was relevant. And at the beginning, there was lots of data, but it was really more like incidental data, like bridge crossings was a good one. My bridge, there's so many cars crossing this year compared to last year, but it wasn't particularly useful because it was a bit too like regional and After a number of days and maybe a small number of weeks, 
then real substantial data started to appear on the internet from people, from companies, from governments that realized that things were moving really fast here and we had to make this data public. They didn't even know what the data would be used for and we just sucked it all out. And so what did you see then? So we saw the most changes occurred in the road transport sector. So because people were confined at home, then car emissions dropped very, very suddenly, immediately like this. And these were the biggest change that we could see in countries that were under full confinement. Traffic was cut down by half. In fact, we saw also changes in industry. So about a 30% drop in industrial activity at the time and less change in power production and electricity than I had anticipated, about 15%. And there we had some question because people, I mean, obviously also still operated, but instead of going to work, operated from home. So was the electricity use at home increasing and how much? And that change, yes, electricity use increased, but I mean, just an increase of about 5%. And we realize it's because in fact, a lot of homes are already occupied during the day. So having two or three people did not actually change the use so much. So with all these data evidence, then we were able to make an assessment day by day as a function of how many people were confined around the world. And how big was this drop that you saw then? The drop worldwide at the peak of the confinement was 17% on a daily basis compared to an average day the year before. And in the countries that were under full lockdown, then the drop in emissions was bigger, 30%, maybe even 32 3%. But not all countries were confined at the same time. But at the peak of confinement, we had all of US, most of Europe, Japan, part of Russia, some of Brazil. So we had really a dynamics of, of many, many countries coming to a halt together. And that's when we saw this really big drop in emissions. I met Corinne Le Curie at the University of East Anglia in Norwich in the UK, where she is a professor of climate science. She is 56 years old and she's been a climate scientist for about 20 years. She has what you could call a huge climate CV. She has been a lead author of no less than three IPCC reports and she's also chair of the Climate High Council in France, a group of researchers who every year evaluates the French government's climate policies. Her area of expertise is exactly what she did when the pandemic hit to monitor the world's greenhouse gas emissions, to see what causes the most emissions and how much of the emissions are being sucked out of the air by vegetation and the oceans. Because as we soon will hear, we undeniably owe the natural environment thanks for the fact that our emissions have not raised the temperature on Earth much more than they already have. You could say that all of Corinne Le Carré's research is about three words that most of us have probably heard about, but not thought so much about since the teacher talked about it long time ago in school. But those three words, they actually play a pivotal role in understanding climate change and what we can do to mitigate it. We're talking about the carbon cycle. It took me a while to find my specialty, but I started studying physics at the university and then I moved from physics to meteorology, which is an application of physics, which I found super interesting, actually fascinating. I love the weather. And while doing this program, I got slowly attracted to the oceanography part of the program, so meteorology and oceanography. 
And I then started to work in that field with a professor that was a specialist in the common cycle. And that's when really I found my intellectual home, so to speak. I mean, the common cycle I find particularly fascinating because it has so many facets. It has physics, it has chemistry, biology is a really important part, even core part of the common cycle. And then there's all these human dimensions with the emissions. So how does the carbon cycle actually work? So the common cycle is a really interesting aspect of what we call the Earth system. So that's the Earth, the atmosphere, the oceans and everything. And in fact, the contemporary carbon cycle, so where carbon circulates in the environment, is super important for understanding climate change. So we emit CO2 in the atmosphere every year, massive amount from burning fossil fuels in particular, but also some from deforestation and other use of land. But of all the CO2 that we emit, less than half stay in the atmosphere and causes climate change. And the bigger fraction, 55% on average, is in fact sucked up, absorbed by the natural reservoirs, the land and the ocean. And this is the natural environment. And therefore, these natural reservoirs, which we call carbon sinks, are slowing enormously climate change. And understanding these carbon sinks, how they behave, how they will change in a world where CO2 increases in the atmosphere and climate warms, is really fundamental to making good projections of future climate change. So we know what the carbon dioxide does in the atmosphere. It heats the Earth, right? But what does it do in the carbon sinks? What effect does it have? So one of the biggest sink is vegetation, is forests. If you increase CO2 in the atmosphere, forests grow more. It's like vitamin. The tree tissues, the vegetation tissue, is made primarily of carbon. The higher the CO2, the more it's able to take. But there are limits to this uh, because at some point it runs out of water or runs out of other nutrients. So this effect saturates through time. So this carbon sink weakens the higher the level of CO2. This is so interesting because, you know, as a climate reporter, I often get feedback from people who are maybe a bit more on the skeptical side mm -hmm. saying that CO2 is actually plant food. So it's actually yeah. good for the vegetation of the planet. Uh, for the vegetation of the earth, uh, CO2 helps to grow more. That's correct. And in fact, the forests grow more than what we deforest. So there's more growth than there is deforestation at the moment, but in different places. And it affects, of course, also the biodiversity because the deforestation is, in fact, by definition, removing some thriving forests. But indeed, the carbon sink is really a reflection of densification of the existing forests. Therefore, we should not cut them because otherwise we will lose this carbon sink. Now, some people may react to this statement, but yes, it's actually true that the forest cover of the earth is growing. And this is happening despite extensive deforestation in Brazil and other parts of the world. A few years ago, one study showed that the global forest cover had increased by 2.24 million square kilometers from 1982 to 2016. But as Corinne Le says, there is a crucial difference between the old and the new forest. The new forest does not grow in the same place where the old one did, which means that the biodiversity is still hit very hard. The animals in the Amazon, for example, don't really benefit from the forest growing in Siberia. And furthermore, this fertilizing effect that carbon dioxide has on the vegetation on Earth, it also decreases with time. 
And the question now is how much longer can we actually count on the world's forests to store such a huge part of the carbon dioxide we emit? Are we approaching this place then where the limit of how much they can take up the, the plants? It's difficult to say exactly where the level is. There are experiments that look at this, but they're really variable from place to place because it depends on what other resources the vegetation needs, like water and nutrients and soils. And therefore, it's really dependent on location. So that's the carbon sinks on land. What happens in the ocean? In the ocean, the picture is quite different. The ocean carbon sink is mostly a physical and chemical process. So the surface ocean absorbs, so carbon CO2 just dissolves in the ocean. And then it goes into a different form. So not CO2, but bicarbonate. And CO2 exchange with the atmosphere, but bicarbonate actually is essentially isolated. And then these molecules are transported to the deep ocean so that the ocean is a vast store of carbon, 50 times more carbon in the ocean than in the atmosphere. And eventually the fate of CO2 will be to end up much of it in the ocean, but that's a very slow process. However, as you warm the ocean, the solution of this gas, it becomes less because it dissolves less in warm water than in cold waters. As the ocean circulation also changes, there are some effects of weakening the carbon sink, particularly potentially in the Southern Ocean. And there are also a lot of known unknowns that have to do with the acidification of the ocean because CO2 is a weak acid. You put it in the ocean, the ocean becomes more acidic. The ecosystem responds to this in ways that is, in fact, super difficult to know. You know, at the species level, you can do experiments with this, but at the full ecosystem level, how is the full ecosystem in the ocean going to respond to this? At the moment, we don't know. And this is a huge question. I think I've read some stuff about like the shells of um, different uh, species being weakened by this. Yeah. yeah, clearly the organisms in the ocean that have shells, then they lose out here because shells dissolve in acidic water. Then it depends on the level and everything. But what we don't know is we know how many of these shelled organisms there are, and there are lots, but when they disappear, which is extremely sad, what are they going to be replaced by? And what is the ecosystem going to look like? At the moment, the ecosystem lives in the ocean surface. In fact, there's a downward transport of carbon from ecosystem that is as large as the full emissions of carbon dioxide from human activities. You said, though, that it takes quite some time before the carbon dioxide ends up in the atmosphere, where it eventually goes. How long does it take? Like the carbon dioxide that we emit now, how long does it stay in the atmosphere and heat the earth before it yeah. goes somewhere else? So the CO2 that we put in the atmosphere stays a long time. It gets absorbed by these carbon sink, but it stays 100 years on average. Some of it goes away a lot more quickly because it's absorbed by the sink, and some of it stays very, very long, 10,000 years and longer. But on average, it's about 100 years. And that's why it is so important to tackle carbon dioxide when trying to tackle climate change, because as soon as we put emissions in the atmosphere, there's a long tail to what we're doing. And how long does it take from when it leaves the chimney until it starts heating the atmosphere? Straight away. All right, so basically when we emit, we get 100 years of heating from... Exactly, from exactly. 
So to sum up, when we emit carbon dioxide into the air, it immediately begins to heat the atmosphere, and does so for an average of 100 years. This means that the heating that takes place today actually is caused just as much by the carbon dioxide emitted from the first American coal power plants as by the emissions from today's cars. Sea and vegetation take up some of the carbon dioxide that we emit, but not all, and therefore the level rises in the atmosphere year after year. One crucial question is how much more carbon dioxide can humanity actually emit before we exceed the limits set in the Paris Agreement? And these are of course complicated calculations and there are different answers depending on what study you look at. But they all agree on one thing. There is not much time left. The so-called carbon budget is running out. So a carbon budget, the way that most people understand it, is how much CO2 we can emit in the past, present and future to limit climate change to a level that we're prepared to accept. And the level that is in the Paris Agreement is well below two degrees with pursuing efforts to limit climate change to one and a half degree. And one and a half degree is a lot less risky than two degree, I have to say. So that's what really governments should strive for. And therefore, once you've decided which level of warming you're prepared to accept, one and a half or two degrees, say well below two degrees, then you know more or less how much emissions you can still put in the atmosphere until you become at risk of uh, reaching that level. And therefore, carbon budget is really limited because we've emitted so much in the past. How much have we emitted, by the way? So we've emitted so far about 570 gigatons of carbon. The policy units would be 3.64 times that. So 2,000 and something, over 2,000 units. Carbon dioxide. Ca- carbon dioxide, yeah. that's right. And where are we then? How much budget do we have left until we hit the 1.5 degree threshold? In fact, uh, I mean, because warming is over one degree now, is uh, around 1.1 degree of warming so far, we have very little budget left. Uh, and the level, it's approximately 10 to 12 years at emissions level for 2019 until we've exhausted the budget for limiting climate change to one and a half degree. And of course, the closer we get to this limit, the more there are uncertainties about particularly what we do with the other gases, which come and complicate the picture. But there's no doubt that it's a very small number and that therefore the action needs to be really super rapid. 10 to 12 years, in my years, that's nothing. Is it even possible? Yes, it is possible. I mean, it's possible if we start now, because this 10 to 12 years is at current level of emissions. Of course, if the emissions start to drop and they drop rapidly, then we can spread this carbon budget later. If we are practical and enhance the carbon sinks by planting forests, by developing technologies that help us to suck some carbon out of the atmosphere, not all, then you enhance the budget, you increase the budget a little bit. So you can actually put things in place to limit climate change close to that level. If we don't limit climate change close to that level, well, then we need to actually limit climate change as low as possible. So it's not a question of, is it possible to do that? Oh, maybe it's not possible, then we do nothing. It's a question of, we give it all we have and we limit climate change at the lowest possible level because that's the lowest possible risk.
As we concluded in the beginning of this podcast, the emission drop from last year is basically unprecedented. On a yearly basis, emissions fell by 7% according to calculations from the Global Carbon Project. And it's easy to interpret this as good news for the climate. But the question is whether it really is. First, the world did not stop emitting greenhouse gases. Emission levels just dropped to the same level as about 10 years ago. And on top of that, it's expected that the emissions will just go straight up again when the crisis is over. This was actually observed after the financial crisis. Then the world's extensive economic stimuli caused emissions to skyrocket again immediately after the crisis. The emissions even increased to a higher level than before as industries and consumers simply regained some of what was held back during the crisis. And now the same thing could happen again. Emissions on a daily basis have already increased to the same levels at by the end of 2019, according to the Global Carbon Project. Emissions on a daily basis have already increased to the same level as during 2019, according to Global Carbon Project. So if uh, the emissions decrease like they have done in the pandemic over the full year, year on year, this is the kind of decrease that we would need to limit climate change to one and a half degree. But obviously, the decrease during the pandemic was unbearable. I mean, this is not the way to tackle climate change. The measures were all forced behavior measure, very, very severe mental and physical health impacts. And they haven't actually changed very much because as soon as the confinement ended, the emissions are already creeping back up. And this is because... There has been no structural changes in the pandemic. We have the same roads, the same cars, the same houses and heating system, the same industry. So all these things which are responsible for our emissions in the long term haven't changed. I think, you know, with the first reaction that people got seeing that the emissions dropped very rapidly, that's like, you know, good news for climate. That's how people saw it. But maybe with this perspective, then that's not how you should interpret it. That's right. So the decrease in emissions in the pandemic was actually very small compared to what is needed to tackle climate change. To tackle climate change, the emissions need to go down to zero. So that means that anything we can't bring down to zero, we have to offset with carbon sinks. So it's a huge change. The pandemic, we're talking about a decrease in emissions of one year. So the pandemic itself hasn't done much at all to tackle climate change, if anything. But what is arising as an opportunity, in a way, is what we do to get out of the pandemic. So the economic stimulus that we're putting in place now across the world to sort of help the economy thrive tomorrow, the way that these economic stimulus are oriented could make a massive difference in helping to tackle climate change if they are oriented in a way that changes this sort of network of infrastructure and society that we're stuck in, and if we invest this in, in the infrastructure of tomorrow. What conclusions can we draw from the drop 
that happened during the pandemic and how it will affect climate change going forward? We can draw many conclusions from uh, the COVID episode. One, if we tackle transport emissions, then the emissions go down straight away. So it's a very elastic sector, so to speak. Two, that behavior change alone is not very effective. So we've seen incredible changes in behavior during the pandemic and the emissions decreased only 17%. I mean, it's a lot, but it's not zero. It's not 100% like we need. And so there's not that much individuals can do on their own. Of course, everybody needs to do a contribution and responding to climate change will be a, dy a social dynamics. But an individual can virtually not go carbon-free today. What needs to be done to actually, because you said the rate at which we decrease emissions in 2020, that is the pace we need to be. But this is done now in an unsustainable way. How do we make it, this shift to being sustainably decreasing emissions at that pace? The pace of decrease in emission actually needs to be really fast and it needs to be led by governments. So governments need to put in place strategies that take us out of the use of fossil fuel and the strategies need to apply across the economy so that it's not strategies that are developed necessarily by the Ministry of Environment, however good they might be. They need to be uh, devised and developed and funded by the whole of governments led by prime ministers or somebody really central in government and they need to have decade long of planning with really clear signal, including price signal on carbon. And so there's a lot of work in planning to get out of climate change. Climate change is not something that you decide, as we've seen. I mean, lots of governments have declared climate emergency, and then you do nothing about it. If you declare a climate emergency, then you need to plan for over a decade of changes within society to, for example, provide alternatives for individual car transport, move your entire car fleet to electric, have a solution for your heavyweight lorry transport, then, you know, start tackling your housing sector if you have a problem there, then work with your industry so that they go all their process, low carbon, their supply chain and so on. And the agriculture is another important one. You need really a detailed organized change that engages society so people are behind that and that thinks forward about the inequalities, about the jobs, about the costs, who pays the distribution of costs, about the opportunities and the loss opportunities and how you deal with that process. Of all the things you mentioned now, flying is actually not one of them. How come? Actually, flying is a really big problem in tackling climate change because it's the only sector with agriculture for which we don't have today a way to bring it to zero emissions. There is no technology today that is viable to support the size of aviation that we have before the pandemic crisis in a sustainable way that brings it to zero emissions. So we haven't got electric plane. And if we're going to have one, they're not going to be available at the large scale by 2050. This is a sector that moves extremely slowly because it has very stringent security measures. You don't just fly a plane and test it out. You have to go through a lot of loophole before you can have a fleet that uses a different technology. So it's a slow moving sector. There's opportunities in fuel 
in uh, jet fuel, biofuels, but you need a lot of fuel for this. I mean, we don't have that much vegetation to fuel all the biofuels that you need. You need to produce it. It uses energy. And so it's a really difficult sector to decarbonize. But today, it is a small sector. It's 3% of the global emissions. It's more in rich countries, maybe 5 to 8% in richer countries. So whereas it's a sector that is really difficult to decarbonize, road transport has a lot more emissions. So I think in terms of priority, you need to go after your big things first and develop a strategy for aviation, which is most likely going to need to involve decreasing demand, so essentially flying less. And that is difficult to accept. It doesn't mean not flying at all. I mean, I have family in America, and I really want to have some aviation, but it does mean being rational in the development of the aviation of tomorrow. We've talked about how we have 10 to 12 years, basically, before we reach the 1.5 degree threshold in the Paris Agreement. And we talked about how the drop in emissions during the pandemic was actually quick enough to reach the target, but done in a very unsustainable way. So it's bouncing back, right? And we talk about all these big obstacles that are there to actually be able to transform the whole system to what is needed to reach the climate goals. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like a very dark picture. In all of this, is there something that brings you hope, that makes you think that, yes, we will actually do this? Yes, I think it is possible at the point where we are to turn things over. And in fact, I think post-pandemic, things will be really quite different. The government investment, for one, that they are doing now to restart the economy, many governments have realized and acknowledged that this investment needs to be aligned with moving towards net zero emissions, because otherwise we will move from a health crisis to a climate crisis, which is equally hard. And therefore, these investments, like a one-off investment now in society, all those that will last a long time, could be aligned, could make a huge difference. Uh, there's investments in renewable energy, there's investment in electrification, of mobility. There are investment also in hydrogen, for example, or battery storage. These investments could make a huge difference in the availability, the cost, and therefore the penetration in society of this infrastructure and the technology that we need for tomorrow. What do you hope to be your legacy? That's a nice question. I mean, I'm a climate scientist and I try very hard to make it as clear as possible what is the knowledge of climate science today. But I also try to answer questions as they come. So many times uh, governments have questions about what's going to work. Is this enough? Is this uh, what I need to do now to prepare for tomorrow? And I'm hoping that I can also accompany governments in that transition period. Corinne Le Corée, thank you very much for taking time to meet with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from Svenska Dagbladet. Clara Wallin is producer, Adam Svenell editor, Gunvor Frykolm project manager. My name is Peter Alestig and this was actually the last episode of Climate Thinkers for this time. Continue to follow our climate journalism on svd.se. Thank you for listening. <laughs>